apologise for my voice. I may cough at some point during this talk. And, um, can you all hear me on the microphone? Because I can't shout. Is that okay? Yeah? I've got lots of water. Thank you. Okay. I'd like to say first how honoured I am to be invited to talk at a symposium under this title. But also, I have to say, a little daunted, especially at finding myself speaking first. And this is partly because this topic of mystical perception of beauty is such an important subject to be talking about, and partly because it is very close to my own heart. And on both counts, I think it's absolutely certain that I'm not going to do justice to it. So I want to warn you before I begin um, that I'm not going to attempt to shed light on this in a grand synthesis, but I'm just going to limit myself to making a few remarks under three sections um, based around the, from sections of the preface or the prefaces of Ibn Arabi's Taj Ashwak, the Corbi interpreter or translator of desires, which for those of you who don't know is a cycle of love poems written in the middle period of his life in praise of the beauty of the divine sphere, that is, the divine wisdom in its feminine aspect. I've got to handle this thing. But what first came to mind when I was asked to do this was that I wanted to acknowledge the influence of Brilliant Ralph, um, who was the founding chairman of the Mohidin Ibn Arabi Society, and the person who first introduced me and many others to Ibn Arabi's ideas in the West. And he comes to mind because from amongst the whole range of ideas um, of, and insights which can be found with Ibn Arabi's thought, Boulent very much brought out this aspect of beauty and emphasised its importance for anyone wishing to follow in the Akbarian way. Boulent emphasised not only the absolute beauty of God, the real in himself, the one to whom the divine name Al-Jamal refers, but also the aspect of Ihsan, beauty in action. Ihsan is the acknowledgement that the beauty of God is manifested in the world, that the world is the place of God's beautiful actions. But it is also the act of creating beauty, of beautifying the world as a spiritual practice. And anyone who knew Boulogne will remember how much he himself embodied this quality in his life, in his cooking, in his gardening, in the way that he dealt with people, in his translations of Ibn Arabi's works, etc. The fact that Boulent made beauty so central to his interpretation of Ibn Arabi's work indicates to me that it has a particular meaning or import in our own times. Why this is the case is a matter of discussion, one thing that seems clear is that the importance of beauty is very little acknowledged in the contemporary world. This is largely, I think, because the great classical philosophical theories which supported the notion that the world is a manifestation of beauty, the ancient idea that this is the best of all possible worlds, and the argument from design which maintained that the beauty of the world proves not only the beauty of, but the very existence of a creator, have been eclipsed in modern times. The first, of course, radically critiqued by Voltaire in Candide, a foundational text for the Age of Enlightenment, and the second by the rise of modern science and theories such as evolution 
which argue that there is no external creator or ultimate purpose to creation. Nevertheless, there are many ways in which this era has very much enhanced our appreciation of beauty. You know, modern photographic techniques and mass media have revealed the beauty of the natural world to huge audiences, allowing us to look at, for example, creatures at the bottom of the sea, which no one in previous eras were able to witness. Or likewise, you know, science has revealed to us the great beauty of the universe with its stars and galaxies and black holes and the extraordinary mathematical order of the subatomic world and the truly extraordinary intricacy of the human body and increasingly the human brain. But our increased knowledge of the world as a whole, and particularly, I think, of the human world, does not really bring us to the witnessing of beauty. We are bombarded all the time in the media with images of war, of famine, of crisis, of terrorist attacks, and we know so much about the way that governments behave, not only tyrants and dictators, but democratically elected governments too, and the way that people treat each other, that we are brought face to face all the time with the ugly sides of existence, man's humanity to man. Thus we are deeply cynical now, I think, about human nature and about human achievement. And the idea that the universe as a whole, in all its aspects, is a manifestation of beauty, or that human beings are the, manifest, are the locus for that manifestation par excellence, would be treated by many people, and particularly I find young people who have been brought up in the age of mass media and the legacy of modernism, as self-evidently untrue. And of course, it is precisely this point of view which was presented by Voltaire in his satire, as he exposed his hero to an exaggerated range of truly horrible experiences of both natural and human origin. And in a way, I think you could say that modern media has made us all into candides. Um, Ibn Arabi, by contrast, writing in the 13th century, is one of the great exponents of the classical view that everything in the universe is, at the deepest level of understanding, a manifestation of a single reality which is both absolutely good and absolutely beautiful. As such, <coughs> his work stands as a great synthesis of the, of the development of the ancient wisdom of the Greeks and the Egyptians as they were extended and detailed within the Islamic tradition. And he bases his very coherent and detailed cosmology, as Cecilia has already said, upon the divine saying, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known. Therefore, I created the world that I might be known. And love for him is not a force in itself, but is inextricably linked to beauty. As Boulent pointed out in his paper on Nunian, love is the movement of beauty. Beauty is the ultimate aim of love. Where there is no beauty, there is misery. In the Futter Hat, likewise, we find many great all-inclusive statements concerning the divine beauty, including this. God created the cosmos as something extremely well-ordered and skillfully made. As Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali said, 
There is no possible world more wondrous than this world. This is best for possible worlds. When God, when God made the cosmos manifest, it was in itself his place of self-revelation. So he nor saw nothing within it but his own beauty, and he loved the beauty. Thus the cosmos is God's beautiful beauty, and he is both the beautiful and the lover of beauty. Anyone who loves the cosmos in this regard has loved it with God's love and has loved nothing but God's beauty. For the beauty of a work of art is not ascribed to itself, it is ascribed to the one who made it. Unquote. But Ibn Arabi does not, like Voltaire, expect us to be just able to accept the truth of this statement as self-evident, explaining that this divine beauty, the real beauty of the one, cannot be witnessed just by looking at the outward appearance of things. Thus, in the chapter of Moses in the Fasus al-Hikam, talking about Moses' state after he killed an Egyptian and had to flee from his home into the desert for fear of his life, he says, Moses was frightened on the outside, but at the level of meaning, he fled through love of salvation. For there is no movement in the imminent world which is not that of love. Some people of knowledge understand this, and some of them are veiled by causes which are closer to the immediate circumstances and which exert an influence over their souls. Unquote. So here Ibn Arabi tells us that sometimes the way that an event appears on the outside can be actually the opposite of what it is when we look into its interior meaning. And that which prevents us from seeing the interior reality is our immediate action, immediate reaction to difficult events, our repulsion from some image of horror, our hurt from some cruel action, our feeling of inability in the face of suffering, and so on. And now we know that this is not only understandable but natural, as modern research into the human brain reveals that we are hardwired neurologically to register negative things over positive. So something painful or scary impacts upon us more vividly than something gentle and unthreatening, and it stays with us longer. But for Ibn Arabi, these states of shock and fear are no more than what he calls veils, which cover over or conceal or hide the deepest, the real or deepest meaning of the situation. And in the title of this symposium, the specific meaning of mystical perception is not given. And in the terminology of Sufism, there are actually several terms which could be translated as this. But the most common of them is the term kashf or uncovering, which refers to a moment of real insight when our vision penetrates through these veils of ordinary causality and we see for ourselves, witness, the underlying, underlying reality. Thus, when Ibn Arabi says, there is no movement in the imminent world which is not that of love, it is important to understand that this is not, or not necessarily, a statement about the world as we may perceive or feel it to be in our present state, 
often, as I have said, this is manifestly not the, st- not the case. Nor does it, I just want to note, imply that there is no reason to try to change things in the world. On the contrary, the desire for change would come under the order of the Ikhsan. But rather, it is an invitation for us to look more deeply into the nature of things and into the nature of our own self and constitution to uncover the real meaning of what is happening. So for the truth that people like Ibn Arabi present us with is not of the same order as the truth discovered by science, like, say, Newton's laws of motion or the processes of evolution, which anyone, no matter what their degree of spiritual development, can verify. The kind of witnessing of beauty which Ibn Arabi talks about can only take place when the person who is witnessing is in a state in which they are capable of receiving such a revelation. Thus, it is something, as Ibn Arabi says, that some people know and some people do not. And whether one comes to know is a matter of both knowledge and aspiration. Abdullah Bosnavi says in his commentary on the Fasus al-Hikam, and you... Oh... I'm sorry. (laughs) Knew I wouldn't do this right. (laughs) And you, if you want to see the beauty of the real beloved, initiate your intention to the love of God, according to I was a hidden treasure and I love to be known. Just as manifestation is through divine love, arrival is equally possible through divine love. Part two. One of the things that Ibn Arabi tells us about himself is that everything that he wrote arose from a moment of this kind of uncovering or cash. That is, it had its origin in mystical perception rather than in the exercise of intellectual or logical exposition. In the Futuhat, for instance, he says... For every other writer acts according to their dictates of their own choice and free will, or according to the knowledge which is specifically being promulgated. We, on the other hand, write in the following passion. The heart clings devotedly to the door of the divine presence, watchful for what unfolds when the door is opened, in poverty and need empty of all knowledge. Whatever comes to it from behind that curtain, the heart hastens to obey and sets it out according to the measure appointed by the divine command, unquote. There seems little reason to doubt the truth of this statement, as the sheer quantity of material that Ibn Arabi produced and the recorded speed at which he wrote some of his major works would not have been achievable unless they were written straight down under the force of inspiration. What is more, in the Futuhat, in many of the pref- other prefaces he wrote to, he works, wrote to his works, he gives us information about the specific ways in which this inspiration came to him from behind the curtain, for instance, giving the exact time and date when the revelation happened. Thus, he tells us 
about the inspiration of the Fasus al-Hikam, the ringstones of wisdom. I saw the apostle of God in a dream in which good news was announced in the last part of the month of Muharram in the year 627 in the city of Damascus. He had a book in his hand and he said to me, this is the book of the Fasus al-Hikam. Take it and bring it out to the people that they may benefit by it. And about the inspiration of the footer hat, whose name, of course, translates as the Meccan openings, he tells us that it derived from a vision he had of a beautiful youth while circumambulating the Kaaba in 1202, who said to him, circumambulating my footsteps and observe me in the light of my moon so that you may take from my constitution that which you write in your book and transmit it to your readers. The preface to Tajman al-Ashwaq is of particular relevance for our discussion today, firstly, because the book is directly concerned with the contemplation of divine beauty and the states of its lovers, and secondly, because there do seem to be two different prefaces which, get, which recount different aspects of the way it came to be written. And this makes it especially interesting when, just when, when contemplating the way that mystical experience is discussed. In the, published criti- in the published critical edition and translation by Nicholson, which is the most w- widely used text over the last hundred years, these two prefaces appear as one continuous piece of prose followed by 61 poems. And this is how they are presented in some manuscripts, including Leyden 875, which Nicholson used. But the majority of the surviving manuscripts that I have looked at only have the second part of the preface. I'm not going to go into details of the manuscript situation here, but it does seem that the reason for the discrepancy is that Ibn Arabi actually wrote two versions of the text. And the first was a cycle of love poems accompanied by a preface in which he recounted that the book was dedicated to and inspired by a young woman whom he met during his first pilgrimage to to Mecca in 1202 at the house of two venerable scholars with whom he studied Hadith, Sheikh Abu Shajar Zahib ibn Rustam and his sister, Fakhruddin al-Nisa, both from Isfahan. He tells us that he saw in this young girl, Nidham, the very epitome of divine purity and beauty, and as an expression of his devotion, composed the set of verses in classical Arab style which comprised the Tajuman. But the book aroused some controversy, and so he was prevailed upon by his close companions to write a defence of the mystical meaning of the poems, which became a work in its own right and for which he produced a new preface. This makes no explicit mention of Nidham and describes only the arrival in 1215 during his second pilgrimage to Mecca of what most editions, in what most editions is the first poem of the cycle. So this is what he says. There's an incident which happened to me whilst I was circumambulating the house one night. My moment was pure, and a state which I had experienced before jolted me. 
So I left the paved area because of the people and walked on the sand. Some verses presented themselves to me, so I recited them, making them audible to myself and anyone following me had anyone been there. Would that I... Oh, dear. Sorry. Would that I knew whether they knew which heart they possessed. And if only my inmost heart knew which mountain pass they travelled through. Do you see them as safe or do you see them as having perished? Those who are consumed by passion are perplexed by it and become confused. I felt nothing more than a single touch between my shoulders by a hand lighter than silk. I turned round and there I was with a young girl, one of the daughters of Rum. I had never seen anyone more beautiful there than her in the face or more pleasant in speech, more gracious in manners, more subtle in meaning, more delicate in illusions more astute in conversation. She surpassed all the people of her time in grace and culture, in beauty and in knowledge. She said to me, Sir, what did you say? Then, unquote. So then there is a dialogue in which she reprimands Ibn Arabi for the level of comprehension which he shows in these verses. We will look at them and the dialogue in more detail in the seminar this afternoon because we won't get to them in the talk this morning. So what is the meaning of these two different accounts? And in particular, what is the nature of these two women? Is this second mysterious unnamed woman really, as many people have assumed, Nivam, with some important details such as her place of origin, Rum rather than Iraq, change to disguise her and preserve her reputation. And certainly there is a case for this argument, as she bears many of the characteristics which Ibn Arabi attributes to Nidam in the original preface, beauty, grace, eloquence, wisdom. Or is she another woman altogether? Or does the ambiguity point to something more interesting about the process of inspiration, i.e., that what happens during these moments of mystical unveiling cannot necessarily be described through the kind of language and concepts that we use to describe events in the physical world, which assume chronological causality and the discrete identity of objects. I've left the translation of the first section quite literal because there are some terms here which draw um, upon the lexicon developed over several centuries within the Sufi community to talk about mystical experience. And one of these most important of these is whacked or time, moment, which in one of the earliest written sources of this terminology, the Epistle of Kushairi, is actually the first term on the list. It has been defined as the mystical moment in time, the eternal here and now of the Sufis. And it reflects the practice of being aware of the present moment as a or one particular state of being of the one reality. And Kushairi divines how, state, 
as something which descends upon the hearts of the mystics, regardless of their intentions, their attempts to attract it, or their desire to earn it. The states, he says, are like flashes of lightning. They alight upon the heart, only to leave it instantly. Unquote. It is clear, therefore, that in this account, Ibn Arabi is describing a moment when the door has opened and something arrives from behind the curtain. And his saying that he had known it before is a confirmation that this was his habitual mode of receiving the information he communicated to us in his writing. And the jolting or shaking refers perhaps to the fact that what happens in such an opening is contact with a completely different realm, which being infinite and absolute cannot be contained within the restrictions of the physical world. And so the corporeal constitution is shaken up or shocked, or one could say invigorated and enlivened by its touch. Now the nature of this other realm is essentially ineffable beyond description, meaning that its nature cannot be fully expressed in terms of the forms and images which we derive from the corporeal realm. Therefore, at best, all narrative accounts of what happens, what happens in a moment of mystical perception is a metaphor. And there is always, as Ibn Arabi himself puts it, a process of crossing over or translation, tajuma, the word title of Tajiman al-Ashwak, where we, when we try to talk about what is perceived in a moment of cash, therefore, there is always some aspect of its nature which is fundamentally inexpressible and remains forever a mystery. And this is made all the more so because of another well-established principle of the Sufi tradition, which is that the same revelation never happens twice. That is, reality never repeats itself. Thus, in, Ab in Ab Arabi's understanding, the process encapsulated in the Hadith, I was a hidden treasure, is not something which occurred at some point in the past, at a moment of permanent creation. Uh, <clears throat> but it expresses the fact that the revelation to the heart of the mystic is taking place afresh in every moment. And what is more, the revelation, being of an infinite reality which calls itself a hidden treasure, constantly changes its form, each time presenting to the witness a different indication of the infinite beauties which are concealed within its coffers. And this is very much, of course, what is described in the poems of the Tajiman, in which time after time a ravishing manifestation of extraordinary beauty appears to the heart of the lover. But being of a different realm, it cannot stay and departs, leaving the lover in an even greater state of longing, yearning for the next revelation. So given all this, and also bearing in mind the way that Ibn Arabi himself describes the way that he writes, it seems hardly surprising that we get in two pieces of writing done at different times 
two different descriptions of the divine Sophia, who is the source of inspiration of the Tajiman. And if we accept this, then we also have to accept that neither of the descriptions, definite as they may seem, in the preface or in all the various images in the complete cycle of poems, completely express or exhausts the vision given to Ibn Arabi in a single moment of the essential beauty of the one. Part three. So all this brings us to the last section and consideration of the beginning of the first preface to the Tajiman. Many of Ibn's pre- Ibn Arabi's prefaces, and certainly most of those of his major works, begin with a eulogy, a glorification, praise be to God who, and ends with a prayer to be guided on the right path. These initial few sentences of praise have sometimes been regarded by translators as a bit of an embellishment and even sometimes omitted. But it is clear to anyone who looks at them carefully that they are, in fact, a kind of hint about the nature of the particular revelation which inspired the book. As such, and constitute a highly condensed summary of its essential message. So these first lines of the Tajiman are very dense and very hard to translate. And everyone who has tried to has tried it has come up with a different version. I'm sure Professor Bosang has got a different version from mine. Um, but before I actually go on to, to do this, I just want to acknowledge the contribution of my helper in these translations, Nadia Jamil, Jamil from the Oriental Institute in Oxford who unfortunately is not able to be here today. Um, Nadia has provided invaluable insight not only into the grammar and syntax, syntax of this, it, this preface, but also as an expert in pre-Islamic poetry. She's been able to give some real insight into the meaning of some of the, the traditional ancient meanings of some of the terms Ibn Arabi is using. And so I want to also mention that we're still working on this translation, which actually seems to get more complex rather than simpler the more that we, the more that we look at it. So this is, the, this is the praise. Praise be to God, whose actions are beautiful, the beautiful who loves beauty, who created the universe in the most perfect form and adorned it, or you could say made it alluring, he chaptered out the wisdom. Yeah. He chaptered out the wisdom of the unknowable in degrees when he brought it into being, and then alluded to the place of the mystery in it and particularized it. He set out a detailed summary of its totality for the ones who know God and explained it. He made that which is upon the earth in corporeal form an adornment for it. And then he caused the oh, and then he caused the Noahs to pass away in the witnessing of that adornment with ecstasy 
and rapture, unquote. The first thing to note about these lines is that they fairly bristle with different Arabic words for beauty. There are words derived from the two main roots commonly used, hasana and jumala, both of which can refer to either physical beauty or moral excellence, and zayana, meaning to adorn or decorate, embellish something. There is also the the superlative form of kamala, akmal, a root with the meaning of being complete, perfect, or being finished, whole. And there is a great deal that could be said about all of these. But I'm going to restrict myself to discussion of two words from the root zayana, the two, two words in this preface from the root zayana. Zayana, meaning to adorn, embellish, decorate something, or to make something attractive or alluring. And a noun from the same root, zina, meaning adornment or embellishment. And these two words are of interest because they have strong resonances, both with pre-Islamic poetry and the Quran. In fact, the sentence containing zina is an almost exact quote from Quran verse 18. Ah, there, sorry. Quran, um, Surah 18, verse 7. And the meaning of these two words, zayana and zina, come together in, in, in a very beautiful verse. We have indeed adorned the lower heavens with the adornment of the stars. But in many other instances in the Quran, they have rather negative connotations, at least in the usual interpretations. The zayana is usually found in a context where the dastardly practices of the unbelievers, such as child sacrifice or the worship of idols, are ascribed to the fact that, quote, Satan made their actions alluring to them, unquote, meaning that bad things were made to seem beautiful and thus they were misguided. Whereas Zena is taken usually to denote the things of this world which attract us by their glamour and desirability in such a way as to take us away from the truth path to God. As in the more positive meaning of the adornment of the stars, things which are denoted by the word Zena have a glittering, dazzling quality to them. It is the allure of fame and fortune. It is an ostentatious display of wealth by the rich and powerful. It is the ornaments, the glittering wealth, which the Israelites borrowed from the Egyptians and then melted down to make the golden calf. Above all, though, it is the dazzling and dangerous quality of female beauty, with the injunction, quote, not to display their zina in Quran 24.31, which provides the main Quranic argument for the seclusion of women and the wearing of the hijab. This use of the term is also deeply embedded in the pre-Islamic poetic tradition, where it is precisely the zina of the beloved which overwhelms and bedazzles the poet, inducing him in him irresistible states of longing and yearning which drive him to leave everything else behind, his tribe, his people, even losing his reason so that he comes mad or majnoon 
and in some cases his very existence as he perishes in the desert. Here also, it is the danger, it is the, because of the danger that their beauty will confuse and confound men and arouse strong and potentially destructive passions in them that women have to be guarded and covered over. In the poems, they are often veiled or they are seen travelling in curtained howders. And the types of passions which are aroused by Zena are those usually donated by the term Ashwak. And these are normally the passions and the cravings of the lower self for things it cannot have. It is not usually the term used for the aspiration to higher realities. So understanding some of the connotations of this type of adornment makes us realize that Ibn Arabi is actually saying something rather bold and striking in this opening to the Tajiman. That is, that for those who really understand reality and the nature of manifestation, those who he says who are knowers and have had things explained, these beautiful but, but rather dangerously alluring things, objects, do not have to be avoided, but on the contrary, they can be embraced as objects of contemplation. And this is not because, as special people, they are allowed to flirt with things which are forbidden to the ordinary believer, but because, due to their station of knowledge and their ability to control their own souls, they are able to perceive the realities of these things in their original purity as manifestations of the beauty of God. Thus, in the quote from the footer hat that we read all that long time ago at the beginning of this talk, you will remember that Ibn Arabi says, this is truncated, when God made the cosmos, he saw nothing within it but his own beauty. So God is both the beautiful and the lover of beauty. And this is our line. Anyone who contemplates the cosmos in this regard has loved it with God's love and has loved nothing but God's beauty, unquote. Yeah? And if the dazzling beauty of the things of this world pose such a danger to our reason and to our existence, then this is even more the case when it comes to the absolute beauty of God. When the veils are lifted from this, the glory of the divine face is said to burn away everything that is other than it, just as we would be burnt up by the sun. So the last reference in the last line to the Noah's being annihilated in the witnessing and being brought to a state of ecstasy and rapture. The word for passing away here is connected to the term fanar, which is another special Sufi term referring to the way in which the mystic's individual existence is annihilated in God at the moment of mystical union. And this is a death which is positively desired by the lovers of God. So there is an inversion here with the usual meaning from the pre-Islamic tradition. There, perishing in the way of love is seen as a way to be avoided, a thing to be avoided 
And so the objects of desire need to be veiled or turned away from. Whereas in the mystical tradition, Fanar is seen as a final end to be embraced. And therefore the objects of desire, because it is known whose beauty they really manifest, need to be contemplated and can therefore be unveiled. This understanding allows us to see a little more the way in which in Tajuman, Ibn Arabi uses images of beautiful and desirable things as metaphors for this kind of contemplation of the divine beauty. In the preface, the most important of these beautiful and desirable things is without doubt the person of Nidham. She is not at all veiled, but rather her qualities are on full display. For instance, she is, she is described as riveting to gaze upon. So she's unveiled, you can see her. She is adorned, here's this root, Zayana. She adorned the assemblies at her father's house, delighting whoever was addressing the gathering and confounding her peers with her beauty and her intellect. And confounding here is the sense that the beauty is so great that it confuses the intellect. You can't think you're stupefied in the, fa- in the face of this beauty. She was called Nidham, and she was called Ainal Shamswat Baha, the source of the sun and the glory. One of the women who are learned and serve God, who are dervishes and ascetics, the shaker of the two sanctuaries, and the culture of the greatest sacred land. She was bewitching in her looks. Sorry. Bewitching in her looks, Iraqi in her culture. That is, in that she was the epitome of wit and education and education. Further, her very name, Nidam, meaning harmony and order, proper arrangement has a root meaning to do with the stringing of pearls on a necklace. So again here, we have connotations of adornment. She is the unique jewel of her time, the precious thing of her age, the perfectly strung central jewel in a necklace. And this image invokes not only a sense of superlative adornment, but also centrality. Yet again, she is like the sun around which the other jewels revolve. And the pearl or the jewel is also associated with the divine intellect, akul, in the poetic poetic tradition. And it was very much the force there which held everything in the cosmos together. And it was precisely this akul which could be lost in succumbing to passion for the beloved with the whole constitution of the person subsequently unravelling like unbound pearls. So this image hints at the danger of the situation, but also it is an image of things being held together, of the possibility of not losing your mind in the contemplation of even the most elevated beauty, but maintaining the centre. And the other meaning of nathama is to compose... 
The other meaning of nathama is to compose poetry. So nathum is a verse which in the metaphor is regarded as being strung like individual pearls upon a necklace of the poem to make a harmonious whole. And so here, Ibn Arabi piles adornment upon adornment and makes full use of, of the overlapping meanings of the root. He describes, for instance, how he conferred upon her, as one would a necklace, the finest decorations in the language of pure Arabic poetry and expressions of appropriate love poetry in the form of our verses in this book. And he goes on. I could not express all that my soul experienced and the intimacy aroused regarding my noble-hearted love for her and my long-standing knowledge of her, the subtlety of her quality and the purity of her abode, since she was the request and the sort, the most pure virgin, unquote. And this is one of several references in the preface to the virginal purity of Nidham, who is described by an adjective which also denotes the Virgin Mary, also implying a state which goes beyond the mere physical. Ibn Arabi also emphasizes his own honorable intentions and the high regard in which he held her father and her aunt. In doing all this, he makes it clear that his contemplation and his ardent love is pure and clean, directed only at praise of God as it appears in the place of Nidham, not contaminated by any of the passions of the lower self. Thus he shows himself, even in the first preface, quite aware of how the poems could be interpreted by what he calls, quote, weak souls who are quick to fall into error and unhealthy states, unquote and prays in the last lines that God safeguard the reader from jumping to conclusions which are not suitable for souls which have turned away from lower things, unquote. But in the second preface, he is even more explicit in defence of this type of contemplation. So I thought I would just finish with a slightly shortened version of a rather glorious long poem with which the second preface opens, which is also a great affirmation of the world as a manifestation of the beauty of God. Whenever I mention him in terms of, and, and for those who don't know the, the Tajiman, these are, all these images are drawn from the poems for those that do know the Tajiman, you will recognize the whole of the Tajiman kind of summarized into this, into this poem. Yeah. Whenever I refer to him in terms of ruins or dwellings or places of abode, or likewise, if I say she, or if I say he, or they, or those women, or those two, or if I say in one of our poems that a turn of fate made me travel in the highlands or in the lowlands, or if I say that the clouds wept or the flowers smiled, or if I refer to full moons in howders, or the suns, or the maidens like stars which have set, or the lightning flashes, or the thunderclaps, or the east wind, or the winds, or the south wind, or the north wind, or the road, or the ravine, 
or the sand dune, or the mountain, or the hill, or the sands, or a true friend, or a departure, or a rain-fed meadow, or rain-fed meadows, or thickets, or protected precincts, or young women with swelling breasts ascending like suns, or marble statues. Whenever I mention him in all of these things, or things like that, understand by that divine secrets and the brilliant sublime lights brought by the company of the heavens. My inmost heart, like the hearts of those who have, like me, the qualities of a knower, possesses a holy, oh, sorry, a holy and high attribute by which my truthfulness is attested to. So turn your thoughts from the external aspects of all these things and seek their inner meaning so that you may know. <laughs>